John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh. John 1, 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you, Lord, that his glory was manifested and John did testify of his glory. And we also thank you that his grace has been poured out upon us. We have received of his grace. We thank you, Lord, that our faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. Would you teach us from these words to have even greater conviction and greater understanding of these truths? And may we exalt Christ in everything in our life. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now, the Apostle John is focused on teaching us the manifestation of Christ, the Word. The Word became flesh. And in fact, in our paragraph here, The first time in this book he has mentioned the name of the one he is referencing or has referenced up to this point. Up to this point, he has not said who he's talking about explicitly in terms of a personal name. But by verse 17, he says, Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he called him the Word. He called him the Word, and otherwise he has been referring to him by pronouns, he and him, like that. And now again in verse 14, he comes back to the Word became flesh. And by 17, we know he's talking about Jesus Christ. So, what his focus is now, as it has been already, is to tell us and to teach us what we ought to know about Christ as the Word and that he came in flesh and why he came in flesh. That he did come in flesh, that is in human flesh, in human form. He became a man, a perfect man. He came in that way. And then why he came in that way? What benefits do we have because he came in human flesh? That's the purpose of this part of scripture here. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh. When he says the word, we know he's talking about the personal and even verbal manifestation of the will of God the Father. He is the personal, tangible, human manifestation and explanation of who God the Father is. That's why he is called the Word. And by verse 18, he says it explicitly. He says, He has explained Him. That is, Christ, the Son of God, explains God the Father. The Son of God, Christ, explains who God is. That's why He's known as the Word. 
And remember, when he's called the Word, according to chapter 1, verse 1, he is also God. He's not God the Father, but he has the divine nature that the Father has. The Father has deity or a divine nature. No one else in the world has a divine nature. There are no other gods in the heavens, in the universe, or any other place that we might imagine. There is no other true God. There's only one God who has the nature of God, divine nature. The Father has that. The Son has that, who's called the Word in chapter 1, verse 1. He has that. And the Holy Spirit possesses a divine nature. He's called God, for example, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. The Holy Spirit is called God there. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all have a divine nature. In this case, in verse 14, now he says that the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son, He became flesh. Means, He became a human. Notice the word that the Apostle John uses, became flesh. Why does he use this, this word flesh? Why does he not say he became a man or he became a human being? Why does he say flesh? Because he is trying to show to us a couple of things. One, that he actually did come into our lowly world, our lowly, weak, and sinful world. That's why he calls it the flesh. He, he, the word became flesh. That's one reason why he's saying he became flesh. Now, mind you, though our world is sinful, though we individually are sinful people, we have sin, we have corruption, we have iniquity, we have all that, right? But not Christ. He partook of our human nature, yet without sin. Remember, it says in Hebrews 4, 4, 15, he was tempted as we are in all things yet without sin yet without sin first peter 2 21 22 who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth he was the blameless lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world according to uh, john 1 29 john john the baptist says of christ Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament were to be unblemished, that is, the worshipers could not present to God a blind animal, a lame animal, a sickly animal. They could not do that. They had to bring an unblemished animal of the proper age to bring as a sacrifice to God. Well, that signified that Christ, though He became flesh, was a sinless Christ throughout his whole life. Christ never, never committed a single sin. He had no corruption in his soul. He had no corruption in mind or heart. He had no corruption in his words. He had no corruption in his actions. He was sinless or perfect, spotless and unblemished in every way, though he became flesh. So we're told he became flesh because he came into our world and took upon our lowly nature. But we're also told he became flesh for another reason. At this time, the time of the first century, the time of the apostles, there was a certain false doctrine that was beginning to spread. 
And then in the second century, third century onward, it began to spread even more. Within Christianity, because of the influence of false religions, but it was also embedded or starting to creep up as like a weed in a garden of flowers, it started to come up among Christian churches, Christian people. And this heresy or this false doctrine is known as doceticism. Doceticism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Doceticism. And this comes from a Greek word that means to appear or to seem, to seem like something. So these false Christians, they said that Christ, Jesus Christ, did not actually become a human, did not actually become a man, did not actually take upon human flesh. He was not a real or tangible physical person. He only appeared to be that way. He was a ghost or a phantom. He only appeared to be that way. He only seemed to be that way. He was not really that. And this part of the scripture in John 1.14 and other places throughout the New Testament are teaching against that false doctrine. They're teaching against it. And why would they teach against it? Because if he did not become flesh, then he could not die in a real sense. And if he could not die in a real sense, how could he take away our sins? How could he bear in his own person the penalty due for our sins? Then his death would have been a fictitious death, a phantom-like death. It would not have been a real death. So if he was not a real human without sin... And if he did not die really and truly on the cross for our sins, taking our guilt, our punishment upon himself, then there's no redemption. There's no salvation. This is why this part of scripture and many other places work or teach against that because it is a very, very dangerous doctrine to believe that Jesus was not a real man. Now that doctrine actually has creeped up cropped up like a weed over the years, like a poisonous weed over the years, for the last 2,000 years. And even today, sometimes you will encounter somebody who claims to be a Christian who says that Jesus was not a real person, he was not a real human in human history, he did not die on the cross, and he did not bear our penalty on the cross. They say that, and yet they say they are Christians. The one that's most obvious is a, a group called Christian Scientists. The Christian Scientists. They have even a publication called the Christian Science Monitor. The Christian Science Monitor. And they uh, publish all kinds of things in there. So the Christian Scientists, they are not Christians and they're not scientists. But they use these words, Christian Scientists, to say that that's what they are, that's what they believe. However, there's more people than just them who say that Jesus was not a real human and he did not die on the cross and he did not die on the cross for our sins. It's a very, very dangerous, devilish doctrine that we must reject. That's why this little phrase, this small phrase, became flesh or the word became flesh is so important to believe. We must believe that God the Son, the Son of God, became flesh. The Word became flesh. 
not only to accomplish our redemption, but to explain our redemption, which we will see further. Now, verse 14, were there witnesses of this? Were there witnesses of, of this? Or did this happen in a corner? Did this happen in a secret place? Did it happen in a, a cave in the desert? No, it says right there, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says there in 14 that the word dwelt among us. That is John the Apostle. That is the 12 apostles. Remember, they ministered with him. They went from place to place with him for three and a half years. They knew he was a real tangible person. They, they worshiped at his feet, right? They ate food with him. They saw him eat the food. Right? They witnessed, they saw that he died on the cross, and they saw that the soldiers took him down and put him into a cave tomb. They, they saw all those things. And then when he rose from the dead, they saw, they saw that he was a physical, immortal, glorified person in a physical, fleshly body. They saw that. They saw everything. They saw the miracles he did. They saw how he slept. They saw how he cried. They saw how he prayed. They saw everything. They, they saw when he dwelt among them. But not only them, but didn't Jesus, was he not interacting and mingling with the 5,000 plus women and children, the 4,000 men plus women and children, and in all kinds of other contexts, did he not interact with individuals or small groups or large groups in many, many instances Matthew as a witness testifies to it. Mark as a witness testifies to it. Luke as a witness testifies to it. John testifies to it. John the Baptist testifies to it. Paul the Apostle testifies to it. Peter in First and Second Peter, he testifies to it. They all testify to it. They are all witnesses to these truths. And even in Roman history, if you study Roman history at the time of Herod, and the, Herod the Great, and then Herod Antipas, and then Pontius Pilate, the time of uh, Agrippa, uh, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, these rulers, Roman um, authorities, at their time, there are Roman historians of the early centuries who testify to the fact that there was this one Jesus from Nazareth, and his people are, are called Christians. And they are the ones who say that he also not only died, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but that he rose from the dead. So the Roman historians of the early centuries are also testifying to this fact of this real person who actually dwelt in our world. So it's not just the testimony of John the Apostle, or of Peter, James, and John, or even of the twelve disciples, or eleven out of the twelve, minus Judas Iscariot. It's not a, just them. He was a public figure. He was in our world. And both Jews, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, and unbelieving Gentiles, like the Roman authorities, they all knew he was a real person and a real man. They didn't believe in him, but they knew he dwelt among them. And then further, those who saw his, work, well, his works and his words, it says, we beheld his glory we beheld His glory, His glorious person, His glorious miracles, His glorious eternal life. They beheld it. They witnessed it. They were eyewitnesses. Correct? 
what is necessary in a courtroom to prove a fact, to prove that an incident occurred when opposing parties are in the courtroom. You need at least two or three witnesses to prove the facts of a case. And here he's saying, we beheld his glory. We were eyewitnesses. We saw what happened. We saw what happened on the Sea of Galilee. We saw what happened in Jerusalem. We saw what happened on the Mount of Olives. We saw what happened everywhere. We saw these things. And this glory that he manifested was as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory was from the Father. So the glory that the Father has, the, the Father is spirit. It says in John 4, 24, God is spirit. It says in 1 Timothy 1, 17, the invisible God. And Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Moses was seeing him who is unseen. Now, these are aspects of faith that we must believe in the invisible, unseen God. Now, that's the Father, correct? God the Father is unseen. And even the Son of God, before he took upon human flesh, was in his deify or uh, in his deity, in his divine nature, he is and was unseen. So, one person, one person, Christ, has two natures. He has a divine nature, which is invisible and unseen. And he, now he has a human nature, which is visible and tangible. You can touch his human body. Even now, if Christ were to appear and, and be, stand in our midst, we could bow before him, touch his feet, and worship him, because he would be a real human being. However, how are we going to know anything about the invisible God unless we who have a physical nature, a body, are confirmed in the knowledge of God from God the Son, the Son of God? That's what he's saying here, that this glory that the Father has, the invisible Father who, whom no man has seen, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. So if we cannot see God the Father in His fullness, in His complete perfection, if we cannot see Him like that, then who can we see that will give us a glimpse of the glory of the Father? Well, it is here, the Son of God. He is the one who reveals the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is the Word or the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who reveals the glory of the Father. Which t teaches us that we cannot know the Father unless we know the Son, because the Son reveals the glory of the Father. And this also eliminates all other religions. It eliminates all other religions. We cannot say that Muhammad, or we cannot say that Buddha, reflects the glory of the Father. That is not possible. It's impossible according to Scripture. Scripture teaches that only Christ reveals the glory of the Father. Here too, when he says, the only begotten from the Father. This expression occurs just a few times in Scripture. It occurs here in John 1.14, the only begotten from the Father. 
In verse 18, it says the only begotten God or only begotten Son. In John 3.16, it does say, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3.18, it says that He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And further, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In these places, all of these places, this familiar expression, which is an exclusively Johannine expression. Only John the Apostle uses this phrase in this way, with this meaning in reference to Christ. He only uses it. So what does it mean? Firstly, what it does not mean. False interpreters have taken only begotten to mean that Christ was an angel, the first created angel, an archangel, the first created being in the world, and then Christ created everything else. Christ is a created being, the first thing that the Father created, and that's why he's called the only begotten, because the Father only made Christ, and then they say, falsely, that Christ made everything else. And they will be, those would be, the modern Jehovah's Witnesses. The Watchtower, they are the ones who knock on doors and usually are in, in pairs or in small families or small groups going from house to house. The Jehovah's Witnesses. They are the ones who believe like that. In ancient times, in the time of the 3rd and 4th century, after, centuries after the time of the Apostles, there was a man named Arius. Arius, A-R-I-U-S. This Arius believed like the modern Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's what he believed, that Christ was uh, begotten in the sense that he was made by God. So he did not always live in eternity past. Christ is not the second person of the Trinity. Christ does not possess a divine nature like the Father. He has a, a subordinate nature and he is just the first created being. Well, that's not what John means, though many people think that. Another false belief is taken up by the Mormons. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith in the 1800s, he started what is called Mormonism, which is predominantly in the state of Utah, but several other states and places around the world. This False belief says that the God, the God the Father has a body of flesh. He has a body like we do. And he had a father who had a father who had a father. And then in heaven, this God the Father with a body of flesh, he has innumerable physically, bodily goddess wives. And then he is um, eternally procreating with his goddess wives. They are coming together as husband and wife in heaven. 
And they produce spirit babies in heaven. They say, falsely, God the Father has a body of flesh, and He has innumerable goddess wives who have bodies, bodies of flesh. They come together as husband and wife, and even though they are bodily and fleshly, they have physical bodies, what they produce when they come together as husband and wife is a spirit baby, and innumerable spirit babies. Well, the first spirit baby, they say, from this phrase, only begotten, they say is, and also from other phrases, firstborn, Jesus is called the firstborn, they say that that's what that means. That Jesus was the firstborn spirit in heaven. Well, that's not what this means. In the Bible, only begotten means that Jesus is the only Son of God by nature. He's the only Son of God by divine nature. After all, remember, the Bible does call angels sons of God. In Job 38, 7, the angels are called sons of God. But it doesn't mean sons of God in the way only begotten Son of God means divine nature. It means sons of God in that they have some attributes of God and they are in the presence of God, worshiping God, sent out to do the will of God on the earth. So they are sons of God in those ways, the angels are. And then you and I. We are called children of God. We are called the offspring of God. For example, in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, all creatures, all people, or all created humans, all humans are called the offspring of God or children of God. So in that way, we might be called sons of God. Why? Because God created us. Because God created us. And then lastly, we who are redeemed, such as in Galatians 4, 1 to 6, we who are redeemed are called sons of God because God the Father has adopted us. We are adopted sons of God into the family of God. In that way, only the redeemed, only the believers, only those who have true salvation are the sons of God in that true and ultimate sense. That's only us. But in this case, he's called only begotten because only Christ it, by nature, because he is eternal God or eternally with a divine nature like the Father, He's the only one like that and has this relationship of father and son to the father. This is why he's called only begotten. Not in any of these other senses, but because he's the only one with a divine nature. Further, not only is his identity mentioned here, the only begotten from the father, but his ministry. He is full of grace and truth. All true grace, all truth, all proper, genuine grace, and all truth are found in Christ and in Christ alone. He is said here to be the source of it. He is said here to be full of it in that he has it, he possesses it, he's the source of it, and he can distribute it, he can share it, he can scatter it to whomever he wishes. He possesses it, 
And then he gives it to whomever he wishes. For example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, Stephen, one of the early disciples, and the first one martyred there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, a godly man, is known as full of grace. Now, when it says he was full of grace, it doesn't mean in the um, inexhaustible sense or in the sense of that he is the source of it, but he is a recipient of this full grace that Christ had. He was full of this grace. And this grace is only here residing in God. And here specifically, the Son of God. If we want to know what true grace is, if we want to know what the biblical definition of grace is. After all, we are told many times every day, this is what grace is. This is what it means to be gracious. This is what it means to be loving. This is what it means to be merciful. We're told this all the time. The culture tells us all the time. But we're not going to understand true grace unless we understand it in the face of Christ. The way Christ taught, the way Christ lived, the way Christ spoke, that's the way we can understand what true grace is. That's in, in terms of true knowledge of this grace. But also, if we're going to experience that grace, the eternal true grace of God, if we're going to experience it, we should not look anywhere else. We should not look to anyone else except to Christ to receive that grace. Further, truth. We know from the famous verse in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ calls himself the truth there. And right here, John, the apostle, calls him full of truth. He's full of grace and full of truth. Here too, if we're going to understand what is true, what is true about this life, what is true about the life to come, what is true in reference to ourselves? What is true in reference to any field of knowledge? If it does not match what the Word of Christ says, who is the source of truth, if it doesn't match the Bible, then it's not true. For example, if the psychologist tells us that we are all good people, we are all, if a psychologist tells us we're all good people, if psychologists, counselors, psychiatrists tell us we're all good people and we just need to change our environment, our physical environment. We just need to change it, manipulate it, sometimes with drugs. We just need to change that. Then, since we're good people, we'll have a peaceful, happy, content life, a successful life, a good life. That's what they teach. But is that true according to Scripture? No. It says the opposite. It says that we are evil. We are depraved in our sins and we need a miracle of God to change our heart so that our life becomes reconciled to God first and then we have peace and then we have joy. Then we have contentment. That's the way it works. So we have to scrap the psychiatry books and the psychologist's books, the counselor's books, whoever is telling you that you're, you're a good person. You are a swell chap. No, we're not swell. That's not true of us. The same with the scientists, the natural scientists. If the scientist says, this earth is four and a half billion years old, which they say, and the universe is 14 to 15 billion years old, which they say, is that true? 
No. It contradicts the Bible. It's easy to see from the biblical evidence that that's not true. So when the scientist says something like that, and we know it contradicts the Bible, then it is not true. Then how about in the, in the area of ethics? Ethics, morality. If someone comes along, a pastor even, anyone, but even if it's a pastor, comes along and says, you know, uh, we all need love. We all need love. And it's okay. It's okay since you love each other. It, you don't have to be married. Um, boy and girl can be together. It, you don't have to be married. Because it's all about love. No, we know the Bible says you should only be married and then you come together. You should not be as boy and girl or unmarried adults. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So in the realm of ethics or morality, sexual morality, we know we can scrap that pastor. We can say he's a false teacher. He's no good and stay away from him. In any field of knowledge, the truth is going to be found in the word of God. Christ. And whenever any field of knowledge deviates or contradicts, undermines the word of Christ, then the word of Christ is true. And that statement, whether the ethical statement, which is actually unethical, whether the scientific statement, which is really unscientific, or any other statement, those are false. We must have this kind of determination because only in Christ will we find the full truth. And who knew this? Who believed it? We have, again, told to us, John. John the Baptist. John, it says in verse 15. Now, this John in verse 15 is not the same John who wrote this book. Remember, John the son of Zebedee, he, James and John were two apostles of Christ. They were the sons of a man named Zebedee. And John the Baptist, which is in verse 15, he is the son of of Zacharias and Elizabeth, and he's more known as John the Baptist. It is this John the Baptist that's mentioned in verse 15. So the Apostle John is mentioning John the Baptist as another testimony, as another eyewitness of the veracity of Christ, he says, or the truthfulness of Christ. Verse 15, John bore witness of him, of Christ, and cried out. So John the Apostle testified and we have, as we saw before in a previous message, we saw that John the Baptist was not a private man in the sense that he was one who preached to the crowds and he preached selflessly to the crowds because he led a very austere life, a very disciplined life. He did not enjoy the basic pleasures of life during his short life. He did not do so. Remember, he was, his diet was locusts and wild honey. Remember, he, he was said to not eat meat or not to drink wine. He, John the Baptist was that way. And so he lived this kind of life and preached the truth to multitudes of people and baptized many of them. This is the kind of witness we have. We don't have in John somebody who is sitting in an exclusive office in a high-rise building with a comfortable circumstance, who never sees the people, the common person. And if you want to see him, there is a security guard on the outside and a, a secure lock on his door 
that nobody can enter unless he bids that person to enter. John the Baptist did not live that way. He lived among the common people and he had a concern for the common people and directed them to Christ. Not to himself, but to Christ. That also teaches us his humility. The people of the world are seeking fame. They are seeking things for themselves. But John was not testifying in that way. He said the very opposite. He says, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for. He existed before me. So he's constantly distracting people and telling them, don't listen to me, ultimately. What you need to listen to or believe in is not me, but I am merely a forerunner and a messenger for Christ. So believe in Christ. Christ is who you need. That's the kind of witness he was. And further, when it says he cried out. He cried out. This was so true that everyone needed to know. Well, who cries out? Except somebody who has to tell people publicly and say it loudly. He has to shout it out so everybody can hear about how important it is. He so believed it, and he was even willing to put his life on the line, which eventually he did. Herod executed him. He was willing to preach it publicly in front of crowds of people who could easily stone him to death, who could easily uh, arrest him and go execute him somewhere in the wilderness. They could easily have done that. And yet he had the boldness, he had the courage to preach it loudly. He cried out, telling them the truth. And that's the way the Apostle Paul was. That's the way Jesus Christ was. That's the way the prophets of the Old Testament were. That's the way we all need to be. We all need to be courageous and be willing to preach however in, uh, we, we need to in whatever circumstance we have found ourselves in. And I said again, in verse 15, remember, he is teaching us humility here. He's teaching people not to focus on him he is merely a conduit. He is a channel to believe in Christ. We all need teachers, right? We all need teachers to point us to Christ. Not to point the, the people to the teacher, for it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We are here for the sake of the people. The teachers or preachers are but they should be pointing people to Christ. That's what he does. And how does he do it in this case? Verse 15. He says to the people that Christ, he's, even though in time, in time and ministry, he's coming after me, yet in rank, he's higher than I. Do you remember? How uh, old was John the Baptist in comparison to Christ? When Jesus was born into the world, when Jesus was born into the world, was Jesus born first or was John the Baptist born first? According to Luke, Luke chapters 1 and 2. Who is the focus of attention in chapter 1? John the Baptist. And then who's the focus in chapter 2? Christ. Christ. So, and if you read chapter 1 carefully, it will say that when Elizabeth was in her sixth month, she visited Mary. When Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy, she went to visit Mary. Which means 
that in terms of physical age, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus of Nazareth in his physical age. In physical age. But it says here, he who comes after me. In physical age, John was first. Why? So that John might also be the forerunner, the predecessor of Christ, to get the people thinking about the imminent coming of Christ and to believe in him. But in terms of ministry, when did Jesus begin his ministry? After John was arrested and executed. It was about that time that there ordained by God, God made it impossible for the people to follow John and Jesus at the same time in terms of physically walking after them or following them. God made it so that John had to be taken out of the way and then Jesus came and he began to preach and have people follow him. So he says, he who comes after me. Now, even though he's coming after me, I'm lesser than he is. Correct? When you think of firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn in your families, who is the one who sets the tone, who sets the scene, who sets the parameters of the way the family is? It's the firstborn, right? Even though John, in comparison to Jesus, was firstborn, though not from the same parents, that in terms of ministry, he comes after him, Jesus is higher than John. Why? Why is Jesus more exalted than John? Why is he? Because he existed before me. Now, John, John the Baptist, is saying, Christ existed before me, even though physically I existed before him. And how did Christ exist before John the Baptist? Because Christ lived in all eternity with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In that sense, Jesus existed before John from all eternity. And because He is God in the flesh, He is a higher rank than John. That's what John the Baptist is telling the people. Now, the quote from John Likely it ends at verse 15. Now, in verses 16 to 18, we resume with John the Apostle explaining the person and work of Christ. Verse 16. For of His fullness, the fullness of Christ, for of His fullness, which is grace and truth, He says, we have all received and grace upon grace. We have all received and grace upon grace. If we have received of the fullness of Christ, who are the we he has in mind in verse 16? I believe he has the believers in mind or the chosen ones of God in mind in verse 16. We all who have received the grace and grace upon grace, meaning abundant grace, abundant grace that is immeasurable grace, this grace is what we have received. Remember in verse 12, verses 12 and 13, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We have received this grace of rebirth in order to believe in Christ and become a child of God. We have received it. 
we all have, that is, we all of the elect, all of the elect believers have received this grace. Not every person in the world. Every person in the world has not received the grace of Christ for his salvation. Only some people have who are elect believers or believing elect. Further in 16, grace upon grace. This phrase, grace upon grace, what does he mean by it? By grace upon grace, I believe he means that we have this superabundant grace. We have grace that is immeasurable, that we cannot fathom this kind of grace we have received. And this grace, it starts in terms of our conversion and our own souls. It, this grace, it starts in time and in history. It starts when we are converted. It starts when God causes us to be born again. It starts at that point when God then gives us faith. He gives us repentance, which are also graces of God. He gives us those things. So he gives us this converting grace. He gives us this uh, regenerating grace. That's what we have initially in time and space at a certain point in our life. That's some grace, which is immense. But then that grace doesn't end. He says it's grace upon grace. So where does the further grace come into play? It comes into play in our daily life, in the sanctifying grace, in the grace that makes us more and more holy, in the grace that we have day by day to have the power, to have the wisdom, to have the will to do the will of God. That is the daily grace that we need, and that also is abundant grace. This abundant grace that works in us is, is, has as its purpose, it is seeking to transform us and to make us more like Christ. And then we will have this grace upon our death when we are in heaven with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, it says in Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That grace we will have, grace that we don't deserve, the grace to be in the presence of Christ. We'll also have grace on the day of resurrection. When, the Christ, when Christ returns in His second coming and He destroys everything that we have here, on that day of judgment, that will also be a day of resurrection. That's going to be when Jesus raises us up. We who are dead, will, if we are buried and dead, He's going to raise us up into an immortal person with an immortal body a glorious body, a graciously produced body, and in that body we will be with Him forever, enjoying His presence and being with one another forever and ever. So this is the grace upon grace that we have. And remember, grace is undeserving. We don't deserve it, but this is what He will do for us because of the amount of of love that He has directed toward us. We will receive it because He loves us in this way. 17, verse 17. All of this is found in Christ. Now He's going to make a distinction. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. We know this, correct? Correct. 
Moses, in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, he delivered the law, those books, to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And after that, he delivered the law from that point onward in his life. He gave it to them. And when he says it was given through Moses, he's not saying that Moses gave his own human, weak, and insufficient wisdom to the people of Israel. He's not saying that. He's saying Moses was the vehicle. Moses was the, the carriage by which God's words of the Holy Spirit, which are also the Spirit of Christ, that the Spirit of Christ's words were handed to Moses, delivered to Moses, and then Moses delivered it to the people. That's what he means by the law was given through Moses. He is not disparaging Moses, but he's just comparing Moses to Christ. And of course, you compare Moses to Christ, compare Isaiah to Christ, or even Abraham to Christ, it doesn't matter who it is, compare you and me to Christ, we're all going to be deficient in some way. That's the point he's making. He's saying, the law was given through Moses. So Moses did right and good by giving them the law and the true words of God, the Holy Spirit. So that's all good. But you cannot depend on, you cannot put your hope in the mere physical words of Moses. You cannot do that. Why? Because grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. If you are just reading or just contemplating the, the physical letters of the Old Testament, if you're just doing that, it's not going to benefit you unless you understand the purpose of these words in Jesus Christ. The realization of it, the manifestation of it, the explanation of it, the source of it all, the object of our faith has to be Christ. That's where the grace and truth reside, just as he mentioned in verse 14, just as he mentioned in verse 16, full of grace and truth. Again, he tells us this grace and truth are realized, are seen, are experienced in Jesus Christ, not Moses or not anyone else. He mentions Moses because Moses was uh, Moses and Abraham, they were the two most revered individuals of the Old Testament among the Jews. He mentions Moses because Moses wrote. Abraham didn't write any words, but Moses did write the words of Scripture. Let's reiterate this point. Ch turn a few pages to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John 5, 39. John 5, 39. He's telling his opponents. Christ is telling his opponents. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them that you have eternal life. And it is these that testify of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, that's Moses, he wrote of me, Christ. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Christ confronts the people here, similar to the way John does in John chapter 1, in that the people were putting their hope in Moses, putting their hope in the words of Moses in the wrong way. They should have understood Moses to be preaching Christ. And they didn't want to believe in Christ. They didn't, were unwilling to come to Christ. They just said, we're on Moses' side. Moses is our friend. Moses is our forefather. Moses is our, 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 our buddy. We are in, in association with Moses, but we want nothing to do with you, Christ. When Christ said, you missed the whole point. Moses taught you to believe in me. You missed the whole point. Believe in Christ. That's what John 1.17 means. Believe in Christ, because that's where the full manifestation or realization of grace and truth are found. In Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, that is the Lord is salvation, that's what his name means. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. This Jesus, a real person from the city of Nazareth in Israel, is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who is prophet, priest, and king, the only redeemer, the only re, uh, mediator for us. Now, it's necessary to clarify verse 17, because on the basis of verse 17 and other misinterpreted verses, you may hear somebody say that because grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ, therefore, we have nothing to do with the Old Testament anymore. We have nothing to do with obeying anything written in the Old Testament ever again. There are many people who believe that way. Many people in Christianity who believe that way, who say we should not have anything to do, for example with the Ten Commandments. They say the Ten Commandments have nothing to do with Christians today. And they do it on the basis of verses like verse 17. But that's not what Christ is teaching. That's not what John the Apostle is teaching here. He's not saying we have nothing to do with the Ten Commandments or nothing to do with anything in the Old Testament. Just take the letter of Romans or the letter of Galatians, or the letter uh, of the, to the Hebrews. Take these letters as examples and do a study and see how much those parts or those letters quote the Old Testament as applicable to us today. They are constantly quoting the Old Testament and even parts of Moses as applicable today for us. As well, it says... In John, uh, excuse me, in Romans, Romans 3, Romans 3, 31. If we believe in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, what then? Romans 3, 31, the very last verse of Romans 3. Do we then nullify the law through faith? He means the law of Moses. Do we then nullify the law through faith in Christ? He means, 
May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. He says we don't nullify, we don't abolish, we don't put away or do away with the law of Moses through faith in Christ. No. May it never be. He's saying no, it's not possible. On the contrary, we establish the law. In fact, the opposite is true. We establish how true it is and how needful it is to guide us in our life when we put faith in Christ. Because the law of Christ is, re, is a reiteration or a perfect visible manifestation of the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul means in Romans 3.31. And that's what the rest of Scripture means. That the Ten Commandments are realized perfectly and explained perfectly in Jesus Christ. Further, let's return to John 1, 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. What does John the Apostle mean? No man has seen God at any time. He, he probably means it in a couple of ways. I think he means it in one way in that if we are to see God at, at all on the earth in any kind of significant way, if we're going to see God on the earth, it's not going to be God the Father. That's impossible. He's saying no man has seen God at any time. Any time means in the past, during the time of the apostles, or in the future. We are not going to see God the Father in His fullness on the earth at any time. But if we're going to see Him, how are we going to see Him? He says later, we're going to see Him through Christ. We will see Him through Christ. It may also mean that in the life to come, in the li even in the life to come, the full glory of God the Father may be veiled from us in some way. We, we will see Him more than we see Him now, but His full glory may be ve veiled in the life to come. The one we will see fully is Christ in a physical body forever and ever. Perhaps that's also what He means. But if we're not able to see the Father, and we can only see the Father through the Son, then whenever God appears in the Bible, whenever God appears throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, who is it that we see or we see on the earth in a tangible way? It's the Son. This is why we say that Moses saw Christ on the earth or that Abraham saw Christ on the earth. Before he was born into the world, Christ came in a temporary physical manifestation and dialogued with Moses, taught Moses, dialogued with Abraham, taught Abraham and others throughout the Old Testament. It was Christ who did it. Further, verse 18 says, the only begotten God. Some manuscripts of the Greek New Testament say only begotten God, while other manuscripts of the New Testament say the only begotten Son. We do know from the other references to the only begotten phrase that we saw earlier in John 1.14 uh, implied there, 3.16, 3.18, and 1 John 4.9, all of those say only begotten Son. They are talking about the Son. 
It may be that that's what John wrote here in John 1.18, the only begotten Son, which is fine. If we believe, as we explain verse 14, only begotten means he's the only one with a divine nature, then fine, well and good. However, remember, in the early church, as I referenced before, there were many others, in addition to that man, Arius, who claimed to be a Christian, but denied the actual person of Christ, who he was. He denied that Jesus had a divine nature. But there were many others also, in one way or another, compromised the divine nature or the person of Jesus Christ. Many others who did so. So, in that way, it may be possible to understand this word God as a way to explain, either by John himself or by others, that when we're talking about Christ, we cannot shrink away from using the word God to describe Christ because he has a divine nature. He has a divine nature. Remember, we saw in our study of chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, we saw that there were at least seven places in the New Testament that used the word God in reference to Christ. That God, that word God, G-O-D, that word, not the word Lord or any other words, which there are many other ways to show that He is God, but the word God itself is used at least seven times in the New Testament as a reference to Christ. And John 1, 1 was one of them. John 20, 28 is another one of them. And possibly this one too, John 1, 18. The only begotten God. So he is God in flesh. Further, it says 18, he is in the bosom of the Father. In the bosom of the Father. The word bosom is not used very much these days, except perhaps in the phrase bosom buddy, meaning a close friend, right? A bosom buddy, a close friend. Now, when it says that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, it's explaining the close and intimate relationship that the Father and the Son have with one another. So that what the Son says about the Father is truly what's on the Father's mind. It is truly what the Father intends for us to know. That He is truly an intimate uh, person with the Father. That's why it says, it says that the Son is in the bosom of the Father. To show us and to teach us that what the Son reveals about God the Father is true, it's reliable, it's dependable. We should believe it. We should. This is what it means also in John 1.1 when it says the Word was with God. The Word was with God. It doesn't mean with God in a merely uh, objective, cold, stony way. Not like that. But it means it in a very personal and intimate way. The Word was with God. Remember, Jesus said in John 17 that He desired to return to the Father to have the glory which I had with you before the world was. So it's in that sense that he had deity and glory and an intimate relationship with the Father. John 17, 5 says that. So then, if this is the way Christ is, then it says in John 1, 18, he has explained him. 
Christ, the Son of God, has explained Him, God the Father. The Son has explained the Father. The Son explains or teaches us, manifests to us, tells us whatever we need to know about the Father. It is the Son who teaches us about the Father. It says in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 37. John 5, 37. The Father who sent me, right, from the bosom, the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. No one has heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. That's what he's saying to them, these unbelievers who are rejecting him. John 6, John 6, 46. John 6, 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from, the, from God, he has seen the Father. One more time. Not, not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. The Father. Further, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. 1244. This is a very important passage that speaks not only of the manifestation of Christ from the Father, but the words of Christ from the Father. John 1244. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, meaning merely in me, but in him. Who sent me? And he who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. If you look at Christ, you're looking at the Father. If you hear the words of Christ, you are hearing the words of the Father. And we better believe in them, otherwise on the last day, the day of judgment, those words that Christ spoke will judge us or condemn us. And one more place. Do you remember Philip? Philip, one of the twelve disciples, he wanted to see the Father. He wanted to see God the Father. John 14. John 14. John 14. Verse 7. 14.7. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. For now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I said to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me 
that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. The works of Christ and the words of Christ, the person of Christ is revealing the Father. Believe in Christ and you are believing in God the Father. If you do not believe in Christ, you are not believing in God the Father. Why do we emphasize the word of Christ? Why do we emphasize we need to know his word and we need to know Christ? Why do we talk like that? We just saw from John chapter 1 and from these other references that if we don't have faith in Christ, our faith is useless, it's in vain, we're still in our, our sins, there's no hope for us. We must believe in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.